I would like to point out, before I introduce myself, that uh, you all are such hoodlums that you would rather pull down chairs in order to sit in the shadows of the back row than to come and sit in the front like these very spiritual Christian people. Just kidding. My name's Travis. Um, I am pastor over in Manhattan, and I am thrilled to be over here with you all this morning and uh, excited to... We've been talking about the Gospel of Mark over there since May, and we're only on chapter 7. So that's like all I got in my brain right now, so we're just going to talk about Mark. I don't know what you've been talking about over here, but tough. We're going to look at Mark chapter 7. Starting in verse one, and uh, we're going to look at like one of the lesser paid attention to passages uh, that I actually, because we've spent time going through each and every verse of Mark over the last six months, there have been some times where uh, like really profound ideas have sprung up out of seemingly nowhere. Like the parts of the Bible that you like in Sunday school when you're, I grew up uh, you know, going to Sunday school every Sunday and I went to Bible college and I've been uh, preaching in some form or another for the last 12 years. And so like, I've spent a lot of time reading the scriptures and for the, like this particular scripture that we're going to look at today follows some really big stories like Jesus walking on water and feeding the 5,000 and healing the masses and, you know, doing all this, all this really incredible stuff and growing momentum in his ministry. And then there's just this kind of exchange that he has with the Pharisees and quotes some scripture. And I don't know, it's just like one of those things that you would typically just fly through and pass over. And it's really kind of grabbed my attention and, and kind of punched me in the gut and convicted me and challenged me over the course of the last couple of weeks. So I'm excited to share it with you. But before we get into that, can, uh, is it okay if we just center ourselves? Do you all do that over here? Like say, say a quick prayer. Um, if I would invite you to just rest your feet, if you're able, rest your feet flat on the floor and allow your hands to rest comfortably. Just take a couple deep breaths. God, we thank you for presence. We thank you for the fact that, uh, you have created space for us to come together and be with one another. And we pray this morning that as we look at the scriptures that our hearts will be softened and penetrable, that our eyes will be clear, that our shoulders will be broad so that we can carry from this place whatever it is, this, whatever mission, whatever, um, whatever conviction that you would give to us, that we can carry as much of it out with us as we can and distribute it to as many people as possible. Uh, we thank you for the story of Jesus, and we pray that we'll uh, receive from you this morning. All right, amen. So uh, just a little bit of background work before we jump into chapter seven, verse one. When we reach chapter seven, verse one, uh, this is right after Jesus has been healing like the, a massive amount of people who are flocking to him because of the miracles that he's performed. And right after Jesus, surfer Jesus has walked on water and uh, passed by, the, I just picture like Jesus always looks like a Scandinavian or Australian surfer and all like white people art. <laughs> and so I think when he's walking on water, it's fun to imagine him surfing. 
Um, and, and so Jesus is just, has just walked on water and passed by his disciples as, uh, as God passed by Moses at the top of Mount Sinai. And before that, uh, his disciples were in a panic because there are masses of people that were gathering around to hear Jesus preach. And there was no food and it was getting dark and they were in a desolate place and they approached Jesus and they say, uh, what are we going to do with all these people? They're going to starve. They need to eat. And we don't have anything to feed them. And Jesus' response as the disciples approach him with anxiety uh, and with recognition of what they lack, Jesus responds by saying, well, what do you have? And there's this, there's this thing that's playing uh, throughout the first six chapters of, of Mark. You've got these, these themes that are, that are kind of dancing with each other of uh, anxiety being kind, being kind of like the default, like fear, recognition of what we don't have. And Jesus comes in and fulfills with abundance by pointing out what we do have, pointing out the presence like when Jesus gets into the boat and the waves calm down when the disciples, after he walks on the water, he goes out to the disciples and the waves calm down and they realize that they're not alone in this. And so there's this theme throughout Mark that's trying to point us to the fact that the, the way that we have approached God and religion throughout the history of our faith tradition uh, has has gotten us to focus on the wrong stuff. And Jesus is coming along and kind of pulling back the curtain on a new way to reorient our, our, ourselves around the way that we view God. So the Pharisees were teaching for, you know, the generations that they had been in power and in authority that the way that God would bless the Jewish people and get rid of the Roman invasion was through strict adherence to the Torah, to the first five books of the Old Testament, where there's 613 uh, laws. And, and they believe that if, if, if the whole entire people of God could just be ritualistically clean for long enough, for two Sabbaths in a row, if they could follow all the rules and not break any commandments, then God would surely show up and deliver his people from the, their foreign oppressors. And so in order to, to meet this goal of perfect adherence to those 613 laws, the Pharisees built what they called a hedge around those 613 laws that was an additional 1,500 or so rules, regulations, and rituals. And there was something to do before you did anything. You had to wash something in a certain way with a certain water from a certain basin, say a certain prayer. And it's, I mean, it's cumbersome and it is oppressive. And this is the religious experience that everyone that was flocking to Jesus had been presented with up to this point. And then Jesus comes along and he presents this new way of experiencing God that, that breaks down barriers. I mean, on Jesus's ministry team, he had a former tax collector and a zealot in a boat together. That is not a good idea, right? And he's breaking, he's redefining. The, the people that have flocked to Jesus are people who have heard tell of the sermon that he preaches where he says, you have heard it said that God's favor is kept aside for the righteous and for a certain small group of very privileged people. But I say unto you, God's favor is for the brokenhearted, is for those who are, are mourning, is for the hungry, is for the thirsty, is for the peacekeepers, is for the peacemakers, is for the meek, is for those who have previously been told you have to do, you have to perform religiously well enough in order to be categorized as being worth God's favor and love. And Jesus comes along and says, no, you already have it. 
And we start to see this theme where uh, in the religion of the day, the idea was we have to perform well enough in order to change God's mind about us so he won't be angry anymore and so that we can avoid punishment. And Jesus comes along and says, no, the whole point of all of it has always been to change your mind about God. I'm here to reveal that you already have this thing that you are working so hard to strive after, and the disciples are finally getting it. It's finally starting to sink in when we get to chapter 7, verse 1, and they forget to wash their hands before they eat. And the Pharisees, who uh, we already know from previous chapters of Mark, the Pharisees have already decided they want to plot to create a case against Jesus where they can put an accusation at him that would justify them conspiring to have him assassinated. They're trying to charge him a crime of a crime that's, you know, penalty of death. Spoiler alert for anyone who's new to the Christian thing, Jesus dies, (laughs) but there's a twist. I won't spoil the twist. You'll just have to be here on Easter. (laughs) So that's where we're at. So chapter seven, verse one, now the Pharisees and some of the experts in the law who came from Jerusalem gathered around him, Jesus, and they saw that some of the people and some of the disciples ate their bread. Some of Jesus' disciples ate their bread with unclean hands. That is unwashed parenthetical reference from the author here in verse three for the Pharisees and all of the Jews do not eat unless they perform a ritual washing. One of those things from the hedge around the law that we were talking about a second ago, holding fast to the traditions of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. They hold fast to many other traditions, the washing of cups, pots, kettles, and dining couches. I don't know. I don't know what a dining couch is either. I mean, I didn't even think they had couches in the first century in, in Palestine. I don't, whatever. It's like one of those weird, like, from Greek to English, it doesn't work situations, I think. Verse 5, the Pharisees and the experts of the law asked Jesus, why do your disciples not live according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with unwashed hands? And he said to them, without hesitation, this is like one of my favorite things that Jesus tends to do, is you've got this elite spiritual group of the most educated, well-read, seasoned veterans of spiritual law and practice, the smartest people in the community, by all accounts, and they approach Jesus with what they think is going to get him. We got you. Only you don't get Jesus. Like, he's like, I mean, he's he's Jesus. And so, immediately, Jesus has this response ready for the Pharisees, the most pious and self-righteous people in the whole entire community. And he says, Isaiah prophesied correctly about you hypocrites. As it is written, first of all, Isaiah would be a hero of the faith to the Pharisees. And Jesus is taking a quote from Isaiah in order to uh, highlight their hypocrisy. And hypocrite, term borrowed from Greek theater, literally means someone who wears masks. So he's calling them play actors, right? You are inauthentic. This isn't real. And then he quotes Isaiah and he says, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. 
See, more good Christians sitting in the front row. (laughs) Hey, Sean. These people, their hearts are not far from him. Read that part again. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart, their heart is far from me. And it's interesting there. In the Greek, that's a, a collective singular of heart. So not only is Jesus calling out the individual practices, but he's also highlighting the fact that this thing that you are about collectively, the heart of this thing that you are, that you are teaching and presenting to the community, this is far from God. You might say that you honor God, but your heart, collective heart, your individual heart, what you are about at the core is far from God. And he goes on, they worship me in vain, teaching as doctrine the commandments of men. Having no regard for the command of God, you hold fast to human traditions. He said to them, you neatly reject the commandment of God in order to set up your own tradition. I'm glad that doesn't happen anymore. We've really, we've really evolved. That was sarcasm. I know we don't know each other very well. For Moses said, honor your father and mother. So now he's quoting another hero of their faith, someone that they would look up to and honor greatly in order to levy his case against them, honor your mother and father, and whoever insults his father and mother must be put to death. Did you all hear that down there? It's a kid stuff joke. Ava has to, you know, that's her memory verse every night before bed. It's my daughter. That would be terrible. I don't do that. But you say that if anyone tells his mother or father, whatever help you, have from, you would have received from me is Corbin, we'll get to that in a second, that is a gift from God, then you no longer permit, permit him to do anything for his father, and mo- father or mother. Man, easy for me to say. Thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And you do many other things like this. Now, Back in verse 11, there's that word Corbin, which we don't have an English word for. It's borrowed uh, from, it's a Hebrew tradition that the Pharisees incorporated into their daily practices, which acted as a loophole that gave the Pharisees the ability to cut the people in their family, including their parents, out of their possessions. Basically, what it meant was if you declared Corbin over something that you, that you owned, that was your possession then that meant it was set aside as a sacrifice to God in the future after you die, but for right now, you can just keep on using it. So this loophole acts as a way for these righteous people to to deny helping their parents or anyone else in the community because, well, I'm a good Pharisee. This has been declared Corbin. This is God's. It's not mine to give away. And so they have created a tradition that gives them the ability to be withholding and selfish and greedy without compassion to the people that are closest to them. And this is a regular practice, according to Jesus, that's happening all over the place. And they call that righteousness. It's made up. And not only is it made up, but it is in stark contrast to the heart of God. And so Jesus is like just pwning these Pharisees all over the place. Verse 14, 
Then he called the crowd around and said to them, listen to me, everyone, and understand there is nothing outside of a person that can defile him by going into him. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles that person. Now, when Jesus had left the crowd, he entered a house. His disciples asked him about the parable that he had just said. And he said to them, are you so foolish? Or my translation, really? Don't you understand that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile that person, for it doesn't enter that person's heart, but his stomach, and it comes out and it goes into the latrine. Toilets in church, great. Parenthetical reference by the author, this means all foods are clean, or my translation, and God said, let there be bacon. And he said, what comes out of a person defiles him. For from within, out of the human heart, comes evil ideas, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, evil, deceit, debauchery, envy, slander, pride, and folly, just to name a few. And these evils come from within and defile a person when they come out. Now, the idea of the human heart here, it's been mentioned a couple of times. Once when Jesus quotes Isaiah and he points to the fact that your collective heart, the heart of this whole entire thing that you're a part of is far from God. And then he circles back around at the end of this and says it's out of the heart that evil ideas come from. Now, that doesn't make much sense in the Western mind because when we talk about heart, what do we talk about? We talk about matters of the heart. Like if you say like, you stole my heart or... His heart's really in it. Or he's, he wears his heart on his sleeve. Right? What are we talking about with matters of the heart? Does Williams not let you all talk on Sunday mornings? Yeah, like, keep on going. We'll, we'll see a trend here. Emotions, right? It's a matter of feeling. So in the Western world, when we say that we're, we're talking about our heart and... and, and uh, this language, it specifically is set aside for like feeling responses, emotional responses, how our feelings manifest themselves. Now, in the first century, that would be a little bit different. It'd be closer to like the, the idea of the ego, like the self, right? But it's not just your emotional responses. That doesn't even, the ego thing doesn't even get it all the way there because in the first century, in the biblical mindset, the heart was the truest self. Your disposition, the way that you see the world, the way that you treat people, the heart, what flows out of the heart is not the stuff that you have to conjure up from within. It's the stuff that just falls out when you're not paying attention. It's the truest expression of who you really are at the bone marrow level. And Jesus is saying, if you want to take an inventory of how this faith thing is working in your life, if you want to take an inventory of the heart, then just pay attention to what's falling out when you're not looking. What flows out is what will defile a person, not what you eat, not what you drink, not how you perform, not how how well you stick and adhere to rules and rituals and regulations, not traditions that you made up. This whole idea that any of this has to do with performance is completely backwards. 
what we are invited into when we take part in this Christianity stuff, according to the guy that started the whole entire thing, is we are taking part in an opportunity to reflect the truest parts of the heart of God by letting them flow out of us. And if you want to find out if you're doing it right, just look at what is flowing out when no one is looking or when, when, when no one's paying attention. And both individually, but also collectively. Like if we want to look at the American church and ask the question, okay, well, how are we doing? Let's take an inventory on how we're doing. Well, let's pay attention to how many man-made traditions we hold up at the expense of the well-being of people. Let's stop doing that. If we want to take an inventory of the heart of our movement, of this whole thing, of our faith, of our religion, then when we choose things that represent the presence of fear, the presence of selfishness, the withholding stuff that we see in the Pharisees and the way that their religion plays out, let's pay attention to that. See, what flows out of our heart, the truest part of us, is evidence to what we trust to be really true. What flows out of our heart is evidence of what we trust to really be true. Listen, that's why I love this church. That's why we're all here. That's why we show up. That's why we give. Because I really do believe that when I look at the individuals in the collective hearts of Forefront, both here and over in Manhattan, like beauty and justice and peace and love and charity, they, they spill out of you all. And that's something to really be proud of and be thankful for. And as we leave this place, maybe the way that we can uh, just kind of keep an inventory on how God is working in our lives is just by opening our eyes and paying attention to what's falling out. When we're not trying, when we're not conjuring. Um, Reza Aslan is an author that I really like. Anybody know who Reza Aslan is? He, uh, he wrote that book, Zealot, which a bunch of Christians didn't like, but I thought it was great. And he wrote a new book uh, called God, A Human History, which a bunch of Christians don't like, but I think it's great. And um, uh, I was watching an interview on YouTube the other day where he was, uh, he was talking about the difference between faith and religion. And he had this interesting way to explain that that I've never heard before where he said that faith is, is this relationship that human beings have with the divine and religion is the language that we use to tell that story. So our religion, the language that we use to tell the story of this relationship that we have with the divine is going to testify to what that divine looks like to us, what we believe to be true about that divine thing. Does that make sense? All right, cool. Uh, let's pray. Uh, God, thank you for this 
this story. Thank you for the person work of Jesus. Thank you for the historical Jesus that we can look at these stories and they can speak into our hearts and help mold us and shape us and change our minds about you so that the incarnational Jesus can be present in our church, in our individual lives and in the city as it spills out from our hearts. I pray that we will be a people that resist living in the place of fear and anxiety that says, well, what do we lack? And that we will continue to grow more and more into being the type of people that respond to that question with, well, what do we have? And in this room, we have a whole bunch of humans with talent and compassion and conviction and purpose who are gathered together as a diverse cornucopia, mosaic, whatever, a tapestry, whatever metaphor you want to use that tells the story about a God who loves in abundance, a God who is enough, a God who has plenty to go around. We don't have to be withholding. We don't have to keep it aside for ourselves. We don't have to, de we don't have to declare Corbin on our resources or our love or our time because there is plenty. And may we be tiny little mirrors that reflect that plenty to the world. Uh, forgive us for when we uh, just forget. Um, continue to grow in us and spill out of us. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.